I've been writing about the issues of race and identity for a while now, and it's not all that often I come across a book that sort of takes me by storm, by which I mean just draws me into the themes, um, struck by its originality, its clarity of exposition, uh, and its um, its um, effectiveness in thinking through the argument. Well, recently I stumbled across White Shift, this book right here by Eric Kaufman, and I said I got to have Eric um, on the program so we chased him down. He's in London. Eric Kaufman's a professor of politics at the University of London. He's also affiliated with the Manhattan Institute. He's written a couple of other books, but we're going to talk about his book, White Shift. Eric, it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Um, let's start by diving right into it. Uh, what do you mean uh, when you use this uh, term, white shift? What's going on? Well, the term is, is really meant to capture two things, the sort of white, white shift 1.0, if you like, which is the decline of the uh, white majorities across Western countries um, this century. And then white, white shift 2.0 is sort of the longer term beijing or blurring of the boundaries of whiteness uh, as we move into the next century. So both, um, both processes I write about in the book. All right. Now you're talking about two huge developments. Let's focus for a moment on the first one. Uh, whites used to be the overwhelming majorities in countries like Australia, um, Canada, um, pretty much all the major countries in Europe, certainly the United States. And what you're saying is not just in America, but in all these countries, we're seeing a shift away from these dominant white majorities toward less dominant white majorities. In some cases, perhaps whites don't retain their majority status at all. I know here in Texas, for example, that Latinos are likely to become a majority in the not too uh, distant future. Now, my question to you is, this is happening. Is it happening sort of by accident or by design? Well, I think it's it's sort of a, an unintended consequence of certain policy decisions that were taken for sort of ethical, moral reasons to sort of try and craft a colorblind immigration policies. Um, and the result of that has been, along with global demographic trends, the result of that has been a big shift in the origins of immigrants and thus in the ethnic composition of populations, because also the native birth rates have gone down a fair bit um, in the past century. And so as a result, uh, the impact of, of immigration is, is so much the greater as well. Now, when the uh, United States debated its immigration law in the 60s, I believe it was Senator Kennedy who um, emphatically said that this uh, change in the immigration laws is not going to produce any big demographic shifts in America. Um, there were others, by the way, opponents of the laws who warned that it would. Was this a case where the critics turned out to be right? Yes, it was. I mean, in a way, critics like Sam Irvin, uh, who I believe was a Texas uh, congressman, were, were, were correct in that this did lead to a major change in the makeup of the American population. Um, but it's true that people like Ted Kennedy said that the new legislation would not have this effect. And lo and behold, they were wrong. Ultimately, it did have a major effect. And, and we're living through, in a way, the changes. Similar bills, by the way, similar shifts occurred in Canada, in Australia, in New Zealand, uh, and, and in different ways in Europe as well. Now, historically, Eric, you know, you've had um, you had America 
which was uh, a dominantly, you may say, British nation transplanted to America. And over time, uh, you had various ethnic groups. I'm talking now about white ethnic groups, the Irish, the Italians, the Jews. They came starting toward the middle of the 19th century, but all the way through the 20th century. Uh, and they became assimilated in, into what Americans sort of fa- called the melting pot. They, they melted into this supposed American pot. Would that be, could that be described as an earlier white shift? Um, yes, it can be. I mean, in the sense that the, the boundaries of the ethnic majority expanded from WASP to include Cath- Catholics and Jews. But I would stress a couple of things. First of all, it wasn't a, a shift in the meaning of white, the racial category, which actually Jews and Catholics already were legally white. So it's not the sort of becoming white narrative that you hear, say, in critical race theory, but it's much more about uh, the, the, the boundaries of the sort of old American or, or all American ethnic majority expanding in a way. And this took place actually very suddenly. So even though there were a lot of Catholics and Jews, they were relatively unassimilated to at least they were assimilated culturally, but not into the collective memory necessarily of the majority until really post-1960 after Kennedy's election. You had this sudden shift. By 1980, more or less, those divisions had faded away in large part. Now, one thing you say in White Shift is that we see this remarkable emergence of a, a kind of a left-wing ideology, which we're all very familiar with now, that essentially asks of every other minority group, particularly the sort of minority groups of color, but by extension, this would apply to gender, to sexual orientation, that these groups should emphasize and italicize their identity. They should celebrate it. They should be proud of it. They should put it on the table, so to speak, while whites should work to uh, repent of and, if possible, dissolve their ethnic identity. Uh, talk a little bit about how this ideology came into being, uh, and then I want to go a little bit more in depth into what it entails. Well, yeah, Dinesh, I mean, you have to really go back to the 1910s, really, when you had a, an Anglo-Protestant country that was seeing a lot of Catholic and some Jewish immigration. The Bohemian uh, cultural left intellectuals called the, they were known as the young intellectuals, lived in Greenwich Village. They very much celebrated this immigration as bringing spice and diversity into what they considered a repressive and boring society. They were mainly WASP themselves, but they were in revolt against their own group. They encouraged, they, they wanted ethnic minorities not to assimilate, to stick to their own uh, faith, and they wanted wasps to become cosmopolitans and get away from their ethnicity. So the message was what I call asymmetrical multiculturalism, multiculturalism for them, but not for us. And that's really the beginning of this mindset, which then becomes stronger and stronger as we move, particularly post the 1960s. It's less so about wasps. And, and Catholics and Jews as the outsiders and much more about whites and African-Americans, Latinos and Asians as the outsiders. But it's the same mentality, which is about ethnicity for them is great. Ethnicity for us is, is toxic. We're going to be back in just a minute. I'm going to ask Eric Kaufman to talk about whether the culture, the bohemian culture of Greenwich Village has to some extent become the culture of America. We'll be right back. 
You have trouble sleeping. I've got the solution for you. It's called Nutramedics, a professional supplement brand trusted by doctors since 1993 and now available to you. What I like most about Nutramedics is our shared values every year. They donate a minimum of 50% of their profits to global charities and missions. That's right, 50% of profits. Amazing. Nutramedics funds projects worldwide that includes feeding the hungry, rescuing orphans, supporting widows, and equipping pastors. And their goal is to surpass $100 million in giving by 2030. Uh, why shouldn't we support a company like that? Now, if you take supplements already, switch to Nutramedics. That's the product I use. A good night's sleep is hard to come by. Nutramedics is all-natural sleep support kit of relaxed medics and melatonin is on sale for $29.95. Take an extra 20% off with the code Dinesh. So go to Nutramedics.com. That's N-U-T-R-A-M-E-D-I-X.com and use the code Dinesh for 20% off Nutramedics's sleep support kit. I'm talking to political scientist uh, Eric Kaufman about his important uh, new book, White Shift. Uh, Eric, you were saying a moment ago that uh, you had bohemian cultures in places like Greenwich Village. Now, I'm assuming that this was also true in the Schwabing in Munich and probably in the left bank of Paris near the Sorbonne, that you have these bohemian cultures that found Western society to be repressive. And they looked at a an affirmation of ethnic identity on the part of minorities, in some cases, perhaps even white minorities, uh, but now um, non-white minorities. And they said, we want an America in which white people become cosmopolitan, as you put it. But black people and brown people celebrate being black and brown. What, what is the sort of underlying logic of this Contradiction. Why should one group sort of cease to become itself, if I can say it, while other groups become themselves more than ever? Well, there is no real logic to it. it it's really splitting the world into two non-overlapping magisteria, where there's one rules for one set of rules for the majority group and another set for minorities, and each has to play their their assigned role. I mean, initially, this was all about kind of liberation and, and sophistication. That was sort of the way it was justified. By the time we get to the 1960s, however, it, it fuses with this sort of oppressor-victim kind of neo-Marxist philosophy uh, to become something sort of a, a little more morally charged, where now the white majority is, is an oppressor and the minorities are victims, and it becomes much more of a sort of uh, majority-minority pseudo-Marxist sort of belief system. And this is sort of the, the origins then of the kind of ideology that morphs into political correctness, Afrocentrism, cancel culture, all of that, which follows in, in train as this expands in scope. Part of what you seem to be implying is that for the white bohemian, the minorities were, you may almost call them a kind of a battering ram in order to knock down traditional elements of the old culture. My question to you is, what about the other side of the coin? What did the minorities get out of it? Why would blacks and browns, let's say coming to America, who might say ordinarily, as I think to some degree I have, hey, listen, uh, you know, I'm very proud of having come from India. I had a happy childhood. I don't repudiate my Indian identity at all, but I wouldn't have come to America if I didn't want to be part of something that could be loosely called American. So why, why would the minorities themselves reject the assimilation model in favor of, let's just call it the ethnic identity model. What's in it for them? 
Well, I mean, it, it of course isn't monolithic. So many minorities, or or if we if we go back to Catholics and Jews, they did want to assimilate and did assimilate, but but the white Bohemians very much discouraged. They didn't want them to do that. They actually had a term called Randolph Bourne, who was a leader of the young intellectuals. One of them used this term, cultural half breed, to refer to an assimilated member of a minority group. So this is something they didn't want minorities to do, but of course minorities did it anyway. Uh, but but there's a, a significant group of minorities who just thought that their Catholic or Jewish interests would be better protected by their ethnic representatives who were all generally pro-immigration. And they worried about anti-Catholicism and temperance laws, which were directed against Catholics. Uh, so so the, 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 the banning of alcohol, for example. And so there were various reasons why Catholics and Jews tended to sort of go in for this kind of philosophy. Now, Trump uh, made some important inroads. Uh, he got a decent uh, share of black and Latino votes, even in 2016, but he got even more uh, in 2020. Uh, how would you describe these um, uh, black people and brown people? What did they see in Trump that they identified with? Uh, and why why are they in opposition to this bohemian plan uh, in which they should sort of sign up for their own ethnic group and stick stay within it politically? Well, yeah, so the white progressive bohemian view of minorities as sort of political objects to be used for some sort of transformation and the minorities' own identities themselves don't line up necessarily very well. And so a lot of minorities, particularly if we're talking about Latinos and Asians, getting into the second, third generation, for example, um, feel more American and they're more sort of patriotic and, and, and aligned to the U.S. Uh, and for that reason, tend to be more likely to be drifting towards the Republican Party. So, for example, if you look at Asian, well, if you look at non-white Americans, their party identity peaks at about 75 percent Democrat in 2008. And it's now only about 50% uh, Democrat as of 2019. So there's been a big slide in the share of particularly Asians and Hispanics, but also African-Americans who identify their party as Democrat. And I think that's very important, particularly for the third generation. You make a very subtle point in White Shift where you say that um, that while minorities will very often celebrate their identity in explicitly racial terms, that whites tend not to do that. They tend to identify with nationalistic symbols. So no one's going to say, you know, I'm really for white culture. I lo love the fact that Mozart was white. Um, they'll talk about the fact that Mozart was a German or Mozart was part of Western civilization. And so they use the paraphernalia of patriotism and the American flag and the national anthem. So would it be fair to say that whiteness is to some degree disguised because it appears under this large you may say nationalistic umbrella. Yeah, so you have the white a, a white pan ethnic identity that does exist, um, and it's more expressed by what it isn't. So it isn't Asian, it isn't Hispanic, it isn't black, as opposed to what it is. And and, and there's a taboo, of course, against uh, creating a, a, a white club on campus. We know that, um, and and so naturally, this then gets sublimated in different ways. But but if you actually ask people, you know, what what is your racial identity? How important is it to you? You actually find that that amongst whites, it's you know forty five to sixty five percent of them sort of indicate that it's at least somewhat important to them, which is about twenty or thirty points less than other groups. But it is still a factor. Um, and interestingly, it's also there to some degree amongst some minorities. So Latinos who identify as white, for example, 
which they're more likely to do if they're third generation, for example, um, they tend to be more likely to be Republican voters, which is quite interesting. Um, but these are, to some degree, choices people make. When we come back, I want to talk to um, Eric Kaufman about neighborhoods and how the shifting composition of neighborhoods reflects, you may say, white shift in action. We'll be right back. In the era of the woke corporation, we need to know which companies will stand up for truth. Debbie and I are excited to partner with an extraordinary watch company that stands alongside our belief in traditional American values. The company is Eggard Watches. This is a company that's moving all its assembly to America. Their CEO, Elon, has his own unique voice, and he isn't afraid to use it. Elon was given a Fox Patriot Award to recognize his messaging in the middle of the defund police movement. To see all the powerful short films the company has put out, just visit their website at eggardwatches.com. Most important of all, Eggard makes incredible watches. Debbie and I are both wearing one today. You can sort of check mine out. I've shown it before. Just beautiful. And we've been ordering for family members. My brother in India saw the ad. He's like, hey, Dinesh, I want one. The craftsmanship and uniqueness is something to marvel at. They feel a lot more expensive than they are. Check out the entire Eggard collection. As a friend of the program, Elon has given us a discount of 15% off to share if you simply use promo code Dinesh at checkout. So go to eggardwatches.com. That's E-G-A-R-D watches.com. I'm back with political scientist Eric Kaufman. We're talking about his book, uh, White Shift. Um, Eric, if you look at the, uh, the division between, let's just say, uh, Trump and Biden or the Republicans and Democrats in America today, uh, you find that the Democrats dominate uh, the cities, uh, particularly the inner cities, but they're, the major cities are going uh, in huge numbers for the Democrats. Uh, and then you have the outlying areas, uh, the rural areas and the outlying parts of the country, which seem to be going the opposite direction. They go overwhelmingly for the Republicans, let's just say for Trump. Uh, I guess there's a fight for some of the suburban areas that lie outside the cities but aren't exactly quite rural. Can you describe um, the the concept of white shift, if you will, because uh, and talk about how a lot of whites have actually decamped and exited the inner city, uh, but a lot of other ethnic minorities, the Asian Americans, the Latinos, now occupy those inner cities with blacks and with a small number of residual whites. Well, yeah, so you've had a shift of, of white population to, towards areas that are relatively white. Now, this is true of all, all groups are attracted to their own areas. Um, but some of the studies seem to indicate that whites have more exclusive uh, neighborhood preferences in that the share of whites that they're looking for in a neighborhood is higher than, let's say, a Latino, the share of Latinos that a Latino would be looking for in their neighborhood. Um, what you see sort of at the aggregate level is that, um, you know, white areas, all areas are becoming more diverse, including the heavily white areas. Um, but whites are not moving into super diverse, highly minority areas, except for a few gentrif gentrifying areas near large city centers. And so essentially what's occurring is that, you know, the, the, the very white areas are becoming a little more diverse. But the diverse areas are becoming a lot more diverse. So the, the white areas remain relatively white. They're, they're declining a little bit, but not very fast, whereas the diverse areas are becoming more and more diverse at a very quick rate. And so, yes, this is leading to a sort of very interesting geography. It's worth saying, by the way, that 
a lot of the the voting patterns are driven by the kinds of voters that that live in rural areas. They're older, less likely to have a degree. Uh, if you actually strip out those demographic characteristics, there's a lot less difference between these places. So, for example, you know, in Britain, if you take Brexit. Um, a white working class person from London is no less likely to have voted Brexit as somebody in the countryside. And something similar is occurring in the U.S. too, that if you were to take your white working class native born person from New York City, for example, actually their voting is not as different from the countryside as people think. Very interesting. Now, let's talk about where this is all going, because there is a school of thought that says, hey, and this is coming, I think, from the left. It's a it's wonderful news that sort of whites are kind of on their way out. Uh, the faster this happens, the better. We're going to have a minority America, which is going to be a sort of a left wing coalition of these different identity groups. Now, you say, I think that that is actually not so fast. That's not necessarily true. The real question is, is it possible to create you? I think you use the phrase an inclusive nationalism in which just as the white majority, the WASP majority was able to take in the Irish and the Italians in the past. Is it possible that the still white majority of America could, quote, take in uh, members of other minority groups to the point that they would create a kind of new majority, a majority that looks that's tanner than the older majority, but remains a majority? Uh, talk about the possibilities of that happening. What would need to occur and what, what should the Republican Party perhaps do to accelerate the creation of that kind of a enduring or at least new majority? Well, yeah, I mean, there's really two entities. One is the sort of nation state, which includes everybody. Uh, but then you have the melting pot, which is the ethnic majority, I would call it. And the intermarriage rates are such between all groups that we're, we're seeing uh, the pot bubbling. And so, yes, I would think that what we will see is this emerging mixed race group. But I argue that it will look more back towards the kind of European uh, and Anglo past, simply because that has the longest roots in the country uh, alongside the African-American. But the African-American melting pot is, is, is a separate melting pot as well. I would say that the uh, the Republican Party is obviously going to want to be pro-assimilation. Um, I also think the pace of immigration matters because it takes a long time for groups to melt into the core. And, and the, the more they melt in and the more they assimilate, the more they'll move towards the Republican Party. Um, there's always going to be a political division, perhaps, which will affect how, how people think of their ancestry as, as, as Americans. But I think that we are seeing this melting process and it will lead perhaps to something like we see in, in Turkey or even in the state of Hawaii where the Hawaiians, it's only about 7,000 pure Hawaiians, uh, but actually there's there's hundreds of thousands of, of, of Hawaiians who identify as Hawaiian. And similarly, I would have thought in the U.S. you'll have a sort of very polyglot gene pool, but the identity will be back towards a much narrower set of, of ancestries and myths. Now, in the United States, we do have one thing, which is the so-called one-drop rule, which has been blocking, you may say, the assimilation of African-Americans. Because if you have somebody, you take, let's say, Barack Obama, who is half white and half black, but in some sense is culturally forced 
to identify as black. I mean, if Obama were to call himself a white guy, people would start attacking him immediately. So for blacks in particular, you have this phenomenon in which they're not allowed, in a sense, to choose. Uh, but I think for other ethnic groups, you do. So is it the case that we might be looking at a multiracial, even political majority, but to some degree one that excludes blacks because of the tragic inheritance of the one drop rule? Well, there is that that tradition, you're right, although it is worth saying that the rate of black-white intermarriage has really taken off as well. Um, and, you know, certainly if you were to look in Britain, uh, you know, you could see people with African ancestry who might perhaps be considered white at some level. And I think maybe in the U.S. you'll get eventually the creation of that kind of mestizo that you have in, in Mexico where it's going to be the African-American and the, and the Anglo myth of origin that that becomes the nucleus of this national ethnic group, if you like. I think I, I could see that occurring. So I don't think there's an insuperable barrier uh, to the absorption of, of African-Americans either. So you think, to just to sum up, and we'll close on this, uh, that you can foresee the possibility of a dominant Republican majority that is multi-ethnic, uh, that has a white majority in it, but is an inclusive white majority that is defined by intermarriage, but also shared cultural ties that affirms the symbols of America as as its own. Right, and and, and collective memories going back to the, the the founding and settling of the U.S., the westward settlement, and 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 the the, the Puritans, and all of that history becomes its history in a way, uh, and its memory. And I guess it's about accepting or rejecting that memory, and that's really the split we're seeing now. If you look in in the survey data, uh, people who reject that collective memory are much more likely to vote for the Democrats, and those who accept that are much more likely to be Republicans, regardless of their actual ethnic origin. And that that's sort of a, that debate over the collective memory and what is America, I think, will define, in a way, some of the divides between parties going forward. Thanks, Eric, for what I think has turned out to be a very stimulating discussion. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Dinesh. Thanks for having me. For years, actually decades, I've never invested in gold, just the stock.